Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artists thinkers. Great to have you with us. Tracy Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show. We've got a great show lined up for you today. I am really grateful and happy that so many people are listening to this show live in the archives and the iTunes podcast channel. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I am interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers. Email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a particular guest um, or if you want to have me ask questions of a particular guest, and you can reach me at tracy at tracylslatten.com. Um, and also, just to tell you, the live chat is open, so live chat me. In the coming weeks, some fascinating guests are coming on. Next week on Thursday, February 4th at 1 p.m., Broadway actress and yoga teacher Mary Michael will talk about evolving our dreams as we go through life. So I'm looking forward to that. And I have a special announcement about some forthcoming guests of the show, but I don't have a specific date for them yet. And those of you who are friends of mine know that my husband, Sabin Howard, and his design partner, Joe Weishauer, won the World War I Memorial Design Competition for a National World War I Memorial in Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. Very cool. A lot of fun. And I don't yet have a date and time for them, but they'll be guests on the show. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am so delighted today to have a personal favorite of mine on the show, and that is attorney Stuart Gartner. And he's going to talk about divorce and family law, and maybe um, he'll have a few ideas about how to keep your marriage healthy. Stuart F. Gartner has represented high net worth individuals in matrimonial matters and closely held corporations in commercial matters over a very distinguished career. 
His extensive business experience has enabled him to address the most critical nature of a matrimonial or corporate dispute with a highly practical and direct legal approach. He has tried both jury and non-jury matters in state and federal courts, but if possible, he seeks in an appropriate case to resolve the matter without the need for expensive and time-consuming litigation. Mr. Gartner has successfully argued both matrimonial and corporate appeals in the appellate divisions and court of appeals, um, such as Van Kipnis versus Van Kipnis, uh, 11NY3D573-2008, in which Mr. Gartner represented the successful litigant in the leading in the leading case in the state of New York as to the enforceability of foreign prenuptial agreements and the contractual interpretations of prenuptial agreements. In addition, he represents individuals in matters concerning divorce, equitable distribution, child uh, support, custody, counsel fees, postnuptial agreements, as well as shareholder, partner, and member business disputes. Mr. Gartner's reputation for ethical standards and the professional ability has earned him the highest rating AV preeminent peer review rated SM by Martindale Hubble. In addition to the Van Kipnis matter, he has numerous other reported decisions concerning corporate and matrimonial matters. Mr. Gartner was born in New York, New York. He attended Long Island University, receiving his BA. He was a recipient of tuition scholarship and a member of Phi Alpha Theta, the National History Honor Society. Stewart studied law at SUNY Buffalo School of Law, where he received a tuition fellowship and received his JD. Soon thereafter, he was admitted to the New York Bar and to the U.S. District Court, Southern District of New York. He is a member of the New York State Bar Association, the New York State Trial Lawyers Association, the American Trial Lawyers Association, Council Kingsbridge Riverdale Marble Hill Food and Hunger Project. You can find more about Stewart at http gartnerbloom.com slash attorney slash Stuart F. Gartner. Stu, welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much, and uh, congratulations to you and Sabin. That's uh, quite an achievement in his being uh, awarded the Memorial Design uh, Award competition. That's that's quite outstanding. So We're I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm honored to be on the show. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really happy you're making the time. I know you're you're very busy. Um, so I'd like to start with you, and this is a question I usually start with from my guests. And so my listeners who tune in regularly know this question, but I think it's really important because it gives a perspective on the unusual thinker who's being featured on the show, and you're definitely an unusual, interesting thinker. And I'm not t- talking about your great jokes, but just in general. And that is, how did you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? And when did you know you were going to be involved in matrimonial and family law? Were these things that made your presence in your home when you were growing up? What did you think you would be? Um, so tell me about your childhood and lead up till now. Well, I can tell you it has been a long and winding journey. Uh, when I was a youngster, I participated a great deal in athletic uh, activities and, and basketball. And I really uh, loved the uh, the competition the drive for excellence, and uh, working as a group. You know, you know, when you play basketball, there are five people on a team, and you have to work together. And time and time again, the one superstar really can never do it by him or herself. So I like the idea of teamwork, and I like the idea of uh, competition. Uh, getting around to uh, matrimonial law certainly took an extended period of time. Uh, incidentally, I come from a... Uh, a relatively very happy home. 
uh, parents who are together for many, many years, and a wonderful sister and family. So my own personal uh, experience has been uh, a very close-knit family. But, you know, I understand that there are problems and difficulties along the line. To make, to make a long story short, uh, I always wanted to be an attorney. I didn't uh, like people taking advantage of the little guy. That was a chip on my shoulder I always had growing up. I liked the opportunity for the competition of a courtroom and preparing and going one-on-one or one-on-two with uh, some other lawyers. And I also liked very much the idea of learning about other businesses which come into play when you're involved in in a commercial matter or a matrimonial matter. My uh, time after uh, law school, and I came out of law school during the time of great unrest, political unrest during the 1960s, and tried to get involved in that regard, and uh, eventually interviewed at some of the larger law firms in New York and learned that this was not for me. My fear is that I would never get out of, in those days, a conference room or library, and I would never get to court. So I made a decision to uh, affiliate and associate with a larger firm where I eventually uh, became a partner. Uh, That firm did primarily commercial litigation representing closely held corporations and businesses, and many uh, uh, clients were involved in the graphic arts and printing industry, which at the time was the second largest industry in New York. From that, uh, I was requested on a number of occasions to get involved in matrimonial matters involving owners of printing companies, and I declined uh, to do that because uh, I was afraid that some very good long-lasting relationships might be soured as a result of a matrimonial matter. To make a long story short, I I eventually uh, did that. I got involved in a matrimonial matter in the middle of the case after uh, my client uh, had replaced his prior attorney. And to my chagrin, the other side had two leading experts in specific areas of printing in connection with valuing uh, businesses. What made it even more interesting is those two witnesses happened to be clients and people I had been working for. So it became a very interesting uh, cross-examination, and because of my familiarity with the printing industry, I think I was able to score some points, and I said to myself, you know, this isn't really not so terrible, and maybe my desire for competition, my uh, uh, willingness to learn about new businesses and industries uh, would come to uh, come to fruition. Uh that's basically uh, how I came about to do what I what I do now. Uh, I went to uh, school in the city, uh, Long Island University, uh, for law school. Uh, I went away, and it was an enlightening experience uh, in Buffalo, New York. It was a whole different mindset in terms of people and times, and and I liked that very much because you'll see in, as part of our discussions when I travel or or deal with uh, situations. Many times I'm more interested in the people I meet as opposed to some beautiful sites or locations. So I I don't know if that's a succinct enough answer, but that's kind of how I arrived at where I am now. That's a great Uh, answer. It's a great answer. So it sounds 
you know, a couple of things I want to say. First is you and I have talked about sports before, um, yeah. and you've talked about, and this is something I've thought about a lot, actually. You've talked about the difference between competing and participating. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's really, you know, I have uh, three children. They've all participated in sports uh, and uh, have a degree of excellence. Uh, but at, at the same time, I, I I encourage that up until a certain point. And then I think there's a desire, and I'm not talking about uh, helicopter parents who hover, hover over their children and watch every move, but I think part of competing in sports is part of growing up. Uh, there, there are winners, there are losers, there are people who want to take shortcuts. And uh, once you get on that court, people see for themselves what you what you can do, how much work you've put in, how serious you are about it. So I'm all for participating. I think it's healthy. It's a good thing to do. But the 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 love of competition, I think, is important to show what you can do. Along those lines, just so I'm totally straightforward, I ran for many years. I always say I ran two marathons, I completed two marathons, and I always brag that how much better I did than the winner because I ran twice as long in terms of time as it took the winner <laughs> to complete. But uh, my point is uh, I love that participation as well. But I think I think there should be a striving for excellence in whatever area you are, be it law, medicine, the arts, uh, in that regard. And I think parents should let their children develop that interest and certainly not prevail upon them to live the lives that they didn't live. Yeah, I think it's important for everyone to learn how to win gracefully and how to lose gracefully. Those are skills. Um, Yeah, you can be a lady or gentleman. Uh, It's a competition. Uh, I know some other people feel, particularly Vince Lombardi, you know, was a strong person. But he was a gentleman, and, and he brought the best out of people, and that's the idea, whether it be in a, uh, an athletic setting or a sports uh, uh, competition, uh, the, the, the bringing out of the excellence, the drive for the excellence, the journey, to coin a phrase, I think is really, really what matters. I agree. And um, on a personal level, I think some of these ideas, you I know that you've You've told me, I hope it's okay I mentioned this, that you're related to some famous, now they're famous, Polish-Jewish dissidents who hid in the woods during World War II. Yeah, this is, this is a story we didn't uh, really know up until a couple of years ago. I have a, an uncle who's uh, 96 who uh, served in World War II, uh, and uh, during the course of that time he had occasion to visit in uh, England and meet some of uh, our relatives, some of whom I've never met. And he learned the story of, of certain great uncles and 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 grandparents and a grandfather who who of course I knew in America. But there were other brothers and other family members who never made it out of uh, the area what we call now as uh, Belarus. And uh, I don't know if it's genetic or, or what. I guess they they just like being pushed around and they fought in the forest. There were a couple of movies. Uh, I forget the titles, but there were a couple of movies regarding their behavior and conduct, and and uh, that was a real shot in the arm, and I had a lot of respect for it. Now, they're not uh, just uh, going along with what was happening in the country, and they fought back uh, against tr- uh, tremendous, tremendous odds. And some didn't make it, and some did, 
but it was a real honor for me to learn that from my 96-year-old uncle. I had never known about that before. That's cool. That's really cool, too. So, you know, now, you know, sort of moving more contemporaneously, you're sort of known as the attorney that other attorneys go to to handle their divorce. But what you, from what you told us, it didn't sound like you came out of law school thinking, now I'm going to be a great divorce attorney. No, I really wanted to uh, to be a, a trial attorney. Uh, there's a term of art now called uh, a litigator, and a lot of times a litigator is a paper lawyer who never gets to court and prepares motions and whatever. Now, all those things are very, very important, and we have really good people at our firm who do things of that nature. But, uh, you know, just like Teddy Roosevelt, uh, the cliche about the man in the arena or the person in the arena, uh, I wanted to get in and do battle. And uh, I found that I, I found criminal law very interesting, but I found that it was really impossible to balance a, a criminal defense practice and do a civil practice where you're dealing with uh, closely held corporations and individuals on a, on a daily basis. So the decision was made to uh, go into the area of, uh, of uh, civil trial work. And in law school, I wasn't the, the tax genius, but I was pretty good at trial techniques, which I think is a, a lost art in, in all candor. And uh, although there's now an effort at law schools to be more of a, a clinic or clinician type of uh, experience, uh, but I, I knew I had an instinct. I knew I got along with people. I loved dealing with people. And it took time to learn the techniques and the rules. And like everyone else, uh, I had a terrific mentor who I, I imitated, copied, stole whatever great ideas <laughs> he had. And uh, I think as a result of that, uh, uh, it was a very re rewarding experience. And now in my position at my firm, I try to uh, uh, pass on some of that ability and technique, and we have some really outstanding young people who are superb uh, trial lawyers as well. But uh, you have to have a, a bit of gumption. You have to be ready to take a judge on in a very civil and polite fashion if necessary. And uh, you also have to be very direct and candid with a client because if a client has unrealistic expectations, they, uh, they will never be satisfied. And particularly in matrimonial work, you really have to tell them based upon your experience what you expect to happen at the end and whether or not they want to try to resolve the case and move on, not punish the other side, and come to a, an understanding that will only benefit themselves in the long run and of greatest consequence if there are children, the children of the marriage. Yeah, uh, that's a question. I have a couple questions uh, and a okay. comment. First, I'll go with the comment, and that is I've seen you before, you know, appearing before a judge, and you have the most amazing focus. You just become like a laser line of light. Is that a skill? Is that something you developed? Is that something you were born with? Are you aware of doing that? How do you do it? Well, first of all, I, I very much appreciate you saying that. Thank you. When I represent a client, particularly a trial, I'm always reminded of, uh, of two things. One, and I know it's going to sound a little hokey and cliche-like, you're, you're their champion. You're their advocate. If you're not going to speak up for them and if you're not going to uh, take the problems of the case head on, 
who who's going to do it for them. So you're you're their champion. The 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 second thing is when we were kids, I remember if we fouled up or we did something improper, we do a do over. There are no do overs at trial. You might get an appeal, and the chances of uh, getting a reversal on appeal are usually not fantastic. So you really have to try to set aside everything else that's going on, laser in on the issues, because that witness is going to get off the stand, and you don't want to say, I could have, should have, would have. And I also find in that regard, and this is another cliche, but it's really true, the harder you work and the more you prepare, the luckier you become. And there have also been occasions where, and I can't explain it, I I can think every trial lawyer has the same feeling. They say never ask a question you don't know the answer to. I don't know if that's really a, uh, a golden rule. You have to be very, very, very careful about doing anything like that. But sometimes you instinctively feel that there is something that's not being said and sometimes you get lucky, and most of the time you don't do it. But uh, there's some, I don't know if it's instinctive or you're really listening to what's going on, and uh, uh, that's how, how that happens. Well, how would you tell? So say you're mentoring one of the young attorneys at your firm. I know your firm has been expanding and taking on people. You guys have a lot of business. And how would you mentor one of these younger attorneys and say, how would you tell them how to do that? Because I have seen you in that state, and it's amazing. You just get completely like this column, laser light. It, it's fantastic. So how would you tell well, there, another person to do that? There, 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 there's, there's two, uh, at least two components. One, we talk about in every case there's a theme. There's the heart of the case that you're trying, trying to address. So – you want to make certain that whatever you're doing, you don't get off on a tangent and some incidental issues to score some points or to show somebody how smart you think you are. You center in on what's the theme and issue in the case. The second thing, and particularly on cross-examination, the attorney, for all intents and purposes, should be telling the story being in control and not asking open-ended questions where a witness can uh, weasel in and out or or say they don't understand or say they don't know. Customarily, our cross-examination is two parts. One, you're going to prepare. You're going to know that part of the case better than anybody else in that room. And if somebody tries to throw in some facts, you'll know that that's, wishful thinking or or inappropriate. The second thing is insist upon an answer. Insist upon an answer. If if a witness tries to evade the question or uh, uh, constantly answers, I don't know, I'm not sure, the judge is going to get angry, the the jurors are going to see that, and you have to do it in a civil and polite manner. So my, my two points are, Think about the theme. What are you trying to show? And second, when you're doing cross-examination, control, control, control. If you're examining an expert in an area you know nothing about, keep your questions short. I can tell you one anecdote. 
I, I once had a case involving the construction of an ice skating rink. And what do I know about an ice skating rink? So I read everything I could about an ice skating rink. And then I learned the expert on the other side is a genius metallurgist, a PhD, who apparently wrote a report that could have hurt my client. I get the report. I look at it. I had subpoenaed and requested the notes. I'm scared to death when I started my questioning because this guy's a PhD genius. He was from a well, very well-known, highly regarded school in the Boston area. And then I asked him, I said, sir, tell me about the time you visited this ice skating rink and what notes you took. He, he looks at me in an incredulous fashion and says to me, oh, I never visited the rink. <laughs> I relied on reports that so-and-so gave me. I asked this guy a couple of more questions. I then tried to show that the information he received was not accurate, and that was the end of the Ph.D. genius metallurgist who the other side, I'm sure, paid a very substantial amount for his time. And uh, the, the, the other side's case basically collapsed at that point. Uh, now, that was a lucky break, but there was something about the report and his manner which led me to believe that this guy had never actually gone to the rink, and that was enough for him to lose credibility. So that I, goes I, back to what you were talking about. You said something about instinct and tuition. How often do you rely on that when you're – in front of well, a judge, even when you're just meeting with the client. Oh, well, when you're meeting with the client, I think you can't hesitate. You got to ask all of the uh, the relevant pressing uh, questions, and in the first meeting, particularly in the matrimonial matter, you have to establish your report. And uh, rapport, and the cliche is is perfectly true. Not every client is for every lawyer, and and vice versa. If somebody comes into my office and said. I want to kill so-and-so, I'm not interested in doing that. But a lot of times in, in talking to people, you really, you really got to listen to what they're saying. You got to listen to where they're coming from. And from that, you can probe and ask some other questions. And if they see you really care and you're interested and you reiterate that anything they tell you is, is confidential, you know, there's, there's a, a built up, uh, building up of, of, of uh, trust. Um, I always say, you know, I don't want to be surprised. I don't like surprise parties, uh, so to speak. I want to know everything I can know from the client, uh, which could possibly help me in terms of the case. So, okay, I have two questions now, and I'm going to say them both, and then you can run with them. One is, how do you handle the high emotions in a matrimonial and custody case? Because that's probably the most primal feelings people have. Um, and number two, do you have an anecdote that you can relate about something that you weren't told that came back up and maybe bit you in the butt or maybe just, you know, was difficult to deal with? Well, I'll, I'll, start, I'll start backwards if, if, if I can. And, and yes. I, I had a case uh, where I was uh, representing uh, someone, and it was a uh, difficult case because there were very, very substantial assets involved. It was a long-term marriage. And uh, I asked at the beginning of the uh, case, uh, was there, in fact, a prenuptial agreement, uh, an agreement before the parties married, uh, which spells out their certain rights and responsibility? And I got a response that there wasn't such an agreement. And then uh, 
maybe a third into the case, we we were discussing a little bit more about the the marriage and where it, where, uh, it took place and and things of that nature. And lo and behold, I find out there's not a, what we would call a prenup, but a foreign document called a marriage contract. And in that marriage contract, which was insisted upon by the wife, the other side, the uh, we found out that they had in fact entered into an agreement many years before, uh, where they followed the model of what's called separate estates, where at the wife's insistence in that particular case, because she probably felt my guy would never amount to too much, she insisted that he sign an agreement, which spelled out that whatever was in their own name was was theirs, and there would be no division of community property or separate property. So if I hadn't found that out and really pursued it, and then we made a motion and we had an appeal, we, we were successful on making the motion, we were successful in the appeal, we were successful in the case, and uh, uh, if I hadn't pursued that with him, we would never have realized that what I was talking about, what I call a prenuptial agreement, such an agreement existed. I'll just tell you one other thing about that case. My guy was a very, very decent man. And uh, he offered, in that particular case, lifetime alimony and a division of the assets 50-50. And for reasons no one could understand, and I believe her attorney may not have understood that, she refused. She turned him down. She was so angry and so emotional. Mm-hmm. And we wound up we wound up with a with a resolution where our client kept almost I would say over three quarters of the assets and uh, had a very reduced payout over over time. But this is because of the anger and upset of of the client. Now, to go back to the first part of your question, a lot of times uh, because I'm, I'm I'm at an age where I can do it, I tell clients in a funny way, but not an obnoxious way, that they have to listen to me because I'm not their parents. And sometimes they listen to me and sometimes they don't. I can usually tell them in advance pretty much how I think the case will turn out based upon the facts that they describe to me and the state of the law. Now, sometimes I don't get all the facts and the law sometimes changes even while the case is going on. But I try to explain to them, particularly in a matrimonial setting, particularly in a custody setting, that it's a very unpleasant experience to go through, that you're involving your children, that you're having a third party make a selection about a custodial arrangement, which you and your spouse should be able to do, that you run the danger of alienating your children, that you run the danger of... uh, having the kids take sides, that you run the danger of having strangers probing every part of your life. And then on top of that, you know, in this day and age, even extremely well-to-do families, it's it's not easy making a go of it in terms of living in metropolitan areas or educating children. And I say to them, this is kind of what's going to happen. Isn't it better? Isn't it better for you and your family to move on if you possibly can, and of equal consequence, not spend the money on third parties 
forensic accountants, uh, uh, forensic psychologists, lawyers, attorneys for the children, days and days in court. Isn't it better to make that decision for yourself? Yeah, but how often does reason prevail over those sorts of uh, high emotions? Well, I used to have a joke, and people asked me how many people work for me, and I'd say about half. Uh, By the same token, I would say uh, maybe half the cases. A lot of times, eventually, you get there. A lot of times, even before a trial, the party heard what you say, but needs to hear from a judge or other person in authority what could transpire or to validate a particular position. I also find on occasion, and this is really a sad part, there are times, particularly in matrimonial matters, where people try to win. I don't know how you win in a matrimonial matter. You you deal with the situation and you try to move on. You can lose, but I don't know how you really could win. And you got to think beyond your immediate hurt, and you got to think of your kids, and you got to think of your family. And uh, there's been a little bit of a change in the law. I can run through that. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be too tedious. But more and more, particularly in New York, and I'm going to, you know, highlight the New York area. The judges really don't want to hear about who's to blame. They don't want to make a determination as to who caused this marriage to disintegrate. They will make a decision in terms of uh, child custodial arrangements where one parent may have better parenting skills than the other or the other person uh, endeavors to interfere with the relationship of the other party. But the, the tendency now, the very strong tendency, is to get away from fault. In New York, we were the last state to adopt what I call a quasi, uh, not crazy, but quasi no-fault position. It's not totally no-fault, but my point being, unless there's egregious conduct, which involves violence or physical abuse, the courts really try to stay away from the issue of fault in determining and in allocating assets or alimony slash maintenance in a case. That That is one of the trends we're going through now. So the judges really just want to see kind of the current picture of assets and they don't want to deal with these sort of blame issues. Well, yeah. When I started practicing in the 1800s, uh, <laughs> basically, basically, the grounds for divorce were adultery and cruel and human uh, treatment, and those were very difficult to prove. And particularly in New York, uh, adultery is a crime. I don't think it's ever been prosecuted in my memory, uh, but it theoretically is a crime. And fall pay uh, was a factor. Uh, and what would happen initially is whomever owned a particular business or asset even if acquired during the marriage, that person would keep the asset. So, for example, uh, Miss Smith had a business uh, which was uh, created during the marriage. Uh, because title ownership was in Miss Smith's name, uh, Miss Smith got that. Or if Mr. Smith had it, Miss Smith might get extended amount of support or maintenance. 
that changed that changed dramatically in 1980 when we incorporated uh, uh, in New York the equitable distribution law and it, it's not equal it's equitable and uh, it's not the same as community property as my so what is the difference what's the difference well, between community property and equitable distribution community property is basically as I understand it an equal division of assets or or a monetary equivalent of an asset that was attained or acquired during the marriage. So if $100,000 was acquired in a bank account, that's going to be split 50-50. New York's a little different. Let me just say this. Generally speaking, the longer the marriage, the longer the marriage, the greater the possibility of assets being divided or a balancing of assets of 50-50. The shorter the marriage, not necessarily. But in New York, and I'm not going to burden your audience, there's a whole series of criteria for the division of assets based upon the length of the marriage, sacrifices that one party has made, standard of living, tax consequences, uh, care for children, all of those factors come into play. And alimony or support is customarily deductible by the person paying and income to the person receiving. Equitable distribution, the division of assets, is generally speaking a tax-free event. So if Miss Jones keeps her business and Mr. Smith gets the marital home plus some other money, that's a tax-free event until the business is sold or the house is sold. Uh, so the courts now will look at assets differently. And this is a very, when I say very, in the last two years, under equitable distribution, there's been a change. Assume we have a long-term marriage and there's a 401K and a bank account and some other uh, cash assets or securities in most instances, those will be divided. The longer the marriage, the greater the chance of a 50-50 division. However, the, the recent law has been uh, a change is that the party who doesn't own, let's say, uh, a veterinary practice, and let's say in my hypothetical situation, the husband stayed home and took care of the kids and the, uh, and the wife had the veterinary practice, in a relatively short marriage, the, the husband in that case, who was the house husband, wouldn't necessarily get 50% of the uh, assets uh, con uh, connected to the veterinary's uh, practice because there can be no showing that any specific things that were done contributed to the appreciation of the business. The, the, the second major change after the equitable distribution law was every state in, a, in, in order to get certain assistance and grants from the federal government and monies had to adopt specific guidelines relating to child support. Each state has a little bit different. In New York, there's a percentage that's calculated based upon whether you have one child, two child, three children, four children, so there's a statutory scheme. However, both in the division of assets and in child support, 
if there are circumstances that warrant a getting off the specific fixed guidelines, the court won't hesitate to do it. They, they simply have to explain why, why they've done that. Uh, and in many cases, uh, the courts go, will go way above the statutory uh, income, particularly in well-to-do families, to award uh, uh, amounts so that people can, can live a normal life. Just the other day, there was another change in the law uh, where we now have also statutory figures for computing alimony, temporary alimony, and post-commencement and post-divorce alimony with, again, a whole series of criteria. So there seems to be a trend, particularly for middle-class families, for them to get an idea of using the guideline formula and the new formula for maintenance, what to expect in a case. But as I and say, do you think do you like that? Do you think the statutory formulas work? Do you think they're fair? Well, let me just say uh, this, uh, if I may. I think if you're dealing with a, uh, let's call it a middle class family, and we'll call it a pension and house case, as it's colloquially uh, referred to, I think it'll make it a lot easier because everybody will understand that on income up to $175,000 in terms of uh, alimony, this is what we can expect. I won't bore you with the formula, but it will enable the lawyers and the parties to have a realistic expectation about what can happen. If you're dealing with a circumstance where there's high-income high folks, a high standard of living, a child with special needs, uh, these guidelines will not be set in stone. The other thing that's been done in conjunction with the guidelines, and right now they're simply advisory, but it shows the, the thinking of the court and the possibility of, uh, of, of where they might go. The court has issued specific guidelines as to how long alimony or maintenance will be paid based on the length of the marriage. Now, if you have a, a, a man or woman 60 who hasn't worked in years, you know these guidelines won't necessarily fall into place. But if you have somebody who's married 15, 16 years, they're going to know that the court's going to award somewhere between six and seven years of alimony unless the income of the parties is relatively equal or there's some very special mitigating factor. So the short answer is I think it'll help in most middle-income cases. Uh, no one really knows because it's so new what we can anticipate in high-income cases. Uh, but the, the goal was, I think, to give a framework or parameter that people can have an expectation as to what will happen in the case. The, the other good thing about the change in the law, two things. One, the courts will now be required to adjust what will be paid at the time of someone's normal and customary retirement. Mm -hmm. We have also eliminated uh, a, a 
concern that was universally disliked by matrimonial lawyers because it was just unrealistic uh, valuations, and we were the only state that did it. Example is uh, Miss Smith put uh, Mr. Smith through college and medical school, and then a divorce happens. Prior to this change in the law, a valuation expert would come in, value the medical degree over the earnings of a college graduate, go out 20 or 30 years, bring that figure into present value, and award part of that to the other spouse. The problem with that was, what if that person died? What if that person changed careers? What if that person was injured? There were too many possibilities that could come into play, which did. And the court finally said, we're going to do away with that. But but when we award alimony, we're going to consider that. They were making an award of equitable distribution, a tax-free award, based upon what that person might make the rest of their life. It, it had other ramifications in terms of alimony, but who's to say if someone, let's, do, let's take a figure, someone's making $100,000 a year above what they'd work, make as a, a college graduate, go out 20 years, $2 million, and let's say bring it into present value and let's make up a number and say that's a million dollars and give the other spouse a half a million dollars. What if that the one who had gotten the degree or license died in a year or two? Mm. What mm -hmm. if that person got sick or changed careers? So that's been taken out uh, that's been taken out of uh, the law that's been changed. So It sounds like a good evolution. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the right word. Uh you know, society's norms change uh, we we have in almost uh, more than half of instances uh, two two uh, two partners two spouses income uh, they're trying to make it realistic in terms of what the economic partnership will be so that the non moneyed spouse can make a go of it to get started to carry on their life and at the same time the person who's paying can also move on and go on with their life. I just want to reiterate, in 99 times out of 100, the person who one thinks is to blame for the breakup of the marriage will not be punished. The only thing what we've done is there's a concept called marital waste where Mr. Smith goes off to Las Vegas and takes money out of the bank and spends $100,000 gambling and loses all of his uh, his money the court will say that's marital waste. And if we have a long-term marriage, the court might say either we're going to deprive you of something you would otherwise get or you're going to put back half, half of that money which should have gone to your spouse. That's, that and custodial issues are the, really the only time fault comes into play or waste comes into play. Well, let me uh, ask you, that seems like a good yeah. turning point when you're talking about fault. And this is more about the people in these cases. You've seen a yes. lot of unhappy marriages and unhappy partnerships over the course of your career. Are there patterns in an unhappy relationship when it's failing? And if so, what are those patterns? What are some of the common elements? And by the same token, you know, you like people, you, you have a lot of friends, you're very involved in a lot of civic organizations. What about marriages and partnerships that work and that function well? 
both happies are reasonably both parties are reasonably happy. Are there commonalities there, and if so, what are they? Yeah, I think that that's a really, really good question. Uh, I jokingly say I have a life sentence, but uh, I got I got lucky. Uh, I, I I think there certainly are, and I see it I see it in other people, and I see it in friends. And I'm not saying that there's a magic potion for everything, and and let's just assume people are in are in pretty good health. Uh, my life experience has shown that couples that are always trying something new, that are, are planning something for the future, uh, rather than sitting you know, around with the, with the remote or complaining, I, I think that stirs the pot and that makes things happen. I think time apart is very important, and I think each partner has to give the other a lot of space to pursue their own interests and not feel that they have to be together all of the time. Uh, so the two areas I think are give the other person some independence. As a couple, keep trying something new, uh, planning something down the road. And uh, I also found just on a personal level that travel is very helpful and very important. On the other side of the coin, so to speak, I find that a lot of times I'm not so shocked that the marriage hasn't, hasn't worked when people describe their premarital condition. I don't know if there's a, a denial of, uh, of a certain reality or a, 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 a hope that one will be changed. My life experience is that people do not change after they're married Children do not save a marriage, and the coup de grace is when one party is totally controlling both in finances and relationships with other people. So if you get a, a, a controlling person who's going to change you, head for the hills. <laughs> That's my advice. And, and, and have when, you ever... Have you ever sat across the table? You're, you've got uh, a couple coming in for um, for a prenup, and you looked at them and you thought, this is never going to work. When Do you have that feeling? How often do you have that feeling? How often are you right, and what gives you that feeling? Well, well let me just say something uh, uh, about, about that. Well, first, let me say this. Uh, we make a point of... Uh, of not representing both sides in any prenuptial agreement. A prenuptial agreement, which is becoming more and more common and used to be basically second marriages, but is not the case now, the prenup agreement, which will be enforced in New York if it's fair and if there's a full disclosure and it's fair when it's going to be enforced, uh, that changes the rights and remedies that one would otherwise have. In other words, the prenup customarily addresses what happens to the estate if somebody dies, what happens to uh, uh, the payment of any support or no support if there's a divorce, what happens at a party's residence, uh, is there going to be health insurance, uh, will certain people get more money based upon the length of their marriage, uh, all of those things. If somebody comes in and wants an agreement prepared and refuses to make full disclosure of tax returns or assets, uh, 
or wants to have a, a contract, we call it a contract that of, of, of adhesion, or is so unconscionable, and that's the term of art the courts use, so manifestly unfair. I know this marriage is going to work. I'm working on a situation like that now, and uh, we'll see what transpires where I told my client, don't sign this agreement, it, it, where it's so controlling and so little of it is uh, fair. Now, I've been in a position where it's been reversed, and I've told the client, I can prepare a great gr agreement. You'll look at that agreement, and you say, boy, she's getting nothing. He's getting nothing. This is just what I want. And I tell them, it'll be a beautiful agreement. It'll be very nicely typed with notary stamps, but it's not going to be enforced. So if somebody doesn't want to be straightforward, or if somebody doesn't want to divulge their assets, or if somebody wants to be cute, uh, that's a guarantee that, one, it's not going to work financially, and, two, this is not somebody you can put your trust in. So uh, and do you find yeah. There, there used to be a, a TV show on House about this doctor. You probably know it. And he had a saying, everybody lies. Do you find that when you deal with your matrimonial clients? Well, uh, let's just say uh, uh, some people uh, misapprehend the facts. Uh, I haven't had experience with outright lies uh, per se, and I've told clients that the guarantee for losing the case or losing a significant part of the case is to, is to lie to me or lie to the court. That's the kiss of death. In any matrimonial matter, if you're an attorney or a litigant, I always tell everybody that the law is, is, is critical. But I also tell parties that the judge has to see you, whether you're a man or a woman, as a straight shooter somebody who cares about their family, cares about themselves. If you're, if you're cute, if you're a wise guy, you, you, you're going to get hurt. So the answer to your question, very seldom do we have major lies, although that happens, but I guarantee that's the kiss of death. But what happens a lot of times is that people, for want of a better word, have different versions of the truth, and they see things from their own particular uh, perspective, and I try to tell them what I, what I think a judge will see or do. The hardest, for example, one of the hardest concerns is you have a situation where you have a young child. When I say young, two, three years old, who's never really spent time away from a mother. And you have a father who's never really been alone with that child overnight. And the marriage hasn't worked out. It's really hard to give that mother a level of security that her her husband or former husband will have the wherewithal to take care of that child. You know, we generally do it in, 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 in to coin a phrase, baby steps, uh, but that's a real concern. Uh, that's, that's a great concern. But it's not a question of somebody lying. Or, it's a real concern that how can you tell somebody something might not happen? So that that's prevalent more than outright lies. Uh, and we have about four minutes left, and I just want to give the listeners another opportunity to hear where they can find you and find out more about you. Okay. Uh, my firm is Gartner, 
a plus sign Bloom PC. We're right here in uh, Manhattan. Uh, we're at uh, 212-759-5800. Uh, my email is sgartner at gartnerbloom.com. We're also on Facebook, and uh, uh, we're we're here and we're available, uh, you know, to to help people if 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 we can. And they're free to email me. They're free to to contact me uh, if they have some questions uh, of great specificity. I just want to mention one other thing. I I I know we have a short period of time. We hear many times, my, this happened to my friend or this happened to my cousin. Every matrimonial judge and lawyer will tell you that every case is unique, every case is special, and what happened in your cousin's or brother's or uncle's case is not the same because every factual situation is so different. And can you, just as kind of a final question, although I could keep asking questions, can you summarize some of the more important points of what you learned along the way as a family and divorce attorney? Okay. Well, how much time do I have? (laughs) About two minutes. Uh, About how long? Two minutes. Okay. Uh, my, My best advice is don't shop around until you find a lawyer who tells you what you want to hear. Go to go to an attorney who knows the law, who knows the facts. You can get referrals from attorneys who don't practice matrimonial law or the bar association or the like. And when you see the attorney and meet with the attorney, try to get a full explanation of everything that will happen in the case, how long it will take so that there's a real expectation that if you don't settle the case it's going to take a year then also say and understand and tell the client that this is going to really permeate and control their lives for the next year and that in order to do this properly they have to do their homework they have to get tax returns they have to get credit card statements they can't do anything precipitous they have to act like Caesar's wife beyond reproach and not to try to get even. And I try to gather all of those facts. I get as many facts as I can as possible. I give them an explanation as to what I anticipate will happen. And I also tell them they better be prepared, particularly if we have a custody fight, for the worst about everybody to come out. And that they'll go on with their lives and they'll survive, but their kids will bear the consequence of what transpired. And that said, can they bite their tongue and act and act in a capacity that maybe they won't get everything they want, but they'll save themselves tons of money, their children will be the better for it. And I always tell everybody who sees me, no matter how old they are, I have the life charts, and if somebody comes in and they're in their 30s, I tell them, hey, you're not looking at the perspective right now. You've got 50 more years to move on with your life and enjoy yourself. Stu, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for being a guest. I'm really grateful. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It was uh, it was my pleasure, and uh, I think I learned a lot, not only about myself, but uh, a little more about mat- matrimonial law that I forced myself to recall as part of this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sue.
So that was the one and only Stu Gartner on Independent Artists and Thinkers. Come back next week. Thanks for being with us.